0: Brethren, we turn to 1 Peter. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter. We'll look at 1 Peter 1 through 4, and then also we'll be reading from Psalm 42. So, hear now the Word of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, From Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is God's holy word that he brings to our minds and our hearts this day. Father, again, open this to us that we may see your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It's a great privilege to be invited to be with you here this morning. It's a great blessing to be with God's people. It's a great blessing to be able to be with God's people, opening the word of God, to hear his word, to hear what he says and what he wants us to know. It's my privilege to open uh, with you today uh, the first letter of Peter. The Apostle Peter is, in many ways, uh, someone I, for some reason, seem to think I could have hung out with. He was a blue-collar man to the core. He was a fisherman. I can only imagine the toughness and, and hardness of his hands from pulling in his whole life, the nets, Uh, that he cast into the sea. Of course, by the time we come to this letter, by the time we come to this point in Peter's life, 1 Peter likely written some 35 uh, plus or minus, give or take, years after the resurrection of Christ, we know that he has been casting his nets, but he has become a fisher of men. And as hard and laborious likely as he uh, toiled to bring in the fish uh, as he worked with his brother and father where we first meet him in the Gospels. These last uh, 35 or so years, likely by the time Peter writes this letter, it has have been an ever greater labor. For now he labors for the cause of Christ. Now he labors in the way that Christ has called him to go out. And so tenderly, and so blessedly feed, feed his sheep. When we read the apostles' words, both in First and Second Peter, we find that uh, though Peter has had 30 years of sanctifying grace poured into him by the promised Holy Spirit, we see that Peter has never gone very far, rightly so, from that shoreline that day. When Christ calls him, and you remember, be with me now, and as it were, uh, thinking back, not so much when Christ first called him to follow, but when Christ called him in, in redemptive grace, in restoration, called him to go and feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And it seems that from this letter, we can glean that that's exactly what Peter uh, was doing. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit was driving him on in to be one who would feed the sheep, who would care for the lambs. Interesting enough, when Jesus restores Peter in such a way, using such language feed my sheep, attend my lambs, that language would have been foreign to Peter. He was a fisherman. Bait the hook, uh, load the net. He could have understood that. But what we find is that Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, in risen glory, one who has, in a sense, thrown his arms, as it were, around Peter to draw him back, has, in a very real sense, said, Now you will learn what I will have you do in my way. And just with those words, it it has to shuffle, as it were, what Peter thought he knew to be about the work that Christ called him to. By the time Peter writes this letter, the church has undergone some very incredible changes. It is uh, multiplied. It is uh, gone forth. Peter himself saw to it that it, it had even gone under the Gentiles, although it was Paul who really takes that mantle ever more greater and, and goes out into the Gentile world. But, but Peter is, is there at the forefront. It is very likely, as church history would teach us and scholarship would point uh, to the conclusion, that Peter writes this letter from Rome. Likely not as the bishop of Rome, as some in history would like to say, or newer history, it could be argued. But, but he's there as pastor. He's there as, as likely one who is doing what he was called to do, to go into all the world and proclaim the good news of Christ. His heart is for these churches, though. As any pastor's heart, any church planner's heart, as any believer's heart. Is any believer's heart to encourage the church and to strengthen it? For one of the changes that has occurred in this time has been that the the church has undergone intense persecution. Bring with me uh, your eyes to the text here and and notice the circuitous, as it were, uh, listing of the names that, that, that Peter Uh, intends for this letter to go, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Uh, Interesting enough, the scholarship could take up many, many chapters as to uh, why did he give this order of cities? It's somewhat of a zigzag, somewhat cyclical. But what we understand and can glean from this is that Peter wanted this letter to go out. Pontius and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, well, it's all that, it's here and there, it's going around. You can look on a map and it it kind of brings you in a circle. Bithynia, the final uh, name there, was undergoing intense persecution from what we understand in the first century. And so he writes to them. He writes to them with the authority of an apostle, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. What can he say to them? What can he offer them? Well, consider, if you will, who these people were. These are Gentile areas. We do know, however, that Peter uses this word, and he uses it in a proper sense. Notice the word dispersion. In a sense, we could see that Peter is likely writing to Jewish Christians. Those who had been converted would come to faith and were, as it were, uh, pushed out, sent out, scattered abroad from all that they knew in Palestine, all that they knew in Israel. Everything that they knew, everything that they were brought up with was different. They were no longer in uh, a several day walking proximity to Jerusalem. They would have to take a seafaring ship. They would have to go on long, arduous journeys over land to ever get back to Jerusalem if they would want to, but they were not welcome there. This intense persecution of the time had, had driven them out. I consider also a Jewish Christian in the first century finding themselves in these churches in Pontius, Galatia, Galatia, remember who was the church planner there? It was the Apostle Paul. Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Finding themselves in assemblies with elders, teaching them the word of God, the Old Testament, bringing it forth, uh, uh, proclaiming the the fulfillment of of all those, those types and shadows there in Christ opening up the law, opening up the prophets, opening up the Psalms. And the ones doing that, the ones preaching this word were Gentiles. Just consider for a moment the Gentile preacher and the the Jewish believer. And and think of just the, 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 the cataclysmic worldview explosion, as it were. That was a lot of syllables for a Sunday morning. Let's just put it this way. Things were different. Things were different. And now they're experiencing persecution. Notice what he calls them. To those who are elect exiles. It's interesting, in some translations, elect exiles is broken up. One will be in verse 1, another... Of Those words will be in verse 2, but Peter did not intend it that way. Why does he use such words? Exiles could also be sojourner, it also could be a pilgrim. Uh, One who is uh, not home yet. One who is on his way. An exile is about. Uh, An exile is in between two worlds in between two places, that which he knew as home and that which uh, he is heading to and on his way to be. In chapter 2, Peter will actually use the word aliens. Not belonging, not supposed to be there, as it were, or not of the area. Consider the first century Christian a Jewish believer, a Gentile believer experiencing this persecution, looking all around them, seeing uh, everything in the world supposedly aligned against them. And in the first century, understand there wasn't any Jewish prudence in a civil way which uh, believers can appeal to. In other words, they couldn't go to a court of law to protect them. They, they had no congressmen or senators to write. The spear of the Roman Empire was what held the peace at the time, quote-unquote, depending on what side of that, that spear you were on. And if you were a Christian in those days, perhaps you felt as if you just didn't belong anywhere. It felt as if everywhere you looked in the world, the world was against you. And some in that list were experiencing it from a from a governmental point, from a cultural point, you just were not feeling as if you belonged. One of the things an exile understands is that you don't quite unpack everything when you stop. You know what I mean by that? When I grew up, we used to go camping And I say that with huge uh, 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 air quotes, as it were. Camping for us was in the backyard, grandmom throwing a sheet over the clothesline, and uh, my brother and I uh, trying to fall asleep, likely not at 3 a.m., knocking on the door to go back into the house. Hopefully, grandmom and gramps awoke to let us in. Not sure why they locked the door. I should have looked at that and thought about that. We we didn't set things up. It wasn't home. It was temporary. You go to a hotel or a motel. What's always fascinated me about hotels is they have drawers. Who actually uses the drawers? There's a suitcase. That's what you use, right? If you use a drawer, I did not mean to offend you in any way, shape, or form. They're not home yet. You don't hang your pictures. You don't set things up. You don't go through the closets and make space for another time. You're on your way. You're on your way. Well, that sounds all nice and good, but what does Peter mean by this? Uh, Understand for a moment what Peter does, and and perhaps it's something that uh, is with him. From all of those years of having to scream out likely those those quick successive orders, if indeed a, a gale would blow over the the sea of Galilee while their nets are out, and he on the ship, perhaps as uh, in charge he was. By all accounts, the older brother on the ship, does. does uh, you could almost hear him uh, yelling those, those quick orders, draw the nets, uh, you know, bring up the anchor if there was such, or however they conducted their, their business, however they conducted the, the fishing. And, and if, you're, if you're mindful, as you come to 1 Peter, you will see these, these short sermons in the midst of this book. To where he almost stops you before you go on. But indeed, you have to go on. It's one of the geniuses of the epistle. But it's the genius of the Holy Spirit who's teaching us through this epistle. He stops us for a moment. Elect exile. It stops. Did you hear what he just said? Can you imagine the first century churches as it first is read in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia? What does Peter have for us? Uh, What great encouragement does he have for us? And understand for a moment before we even go further. Yes, in first Peter, we are going to see the reality of suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ and the blessing of suffering for his name. But Peter doesn't mitigate the suffering by simply saying that's just the way it is. He tells us why it is and how it is. We keep going. We keep pressing on. We keep rejoicing with every step we take because the one thing about a pilgrim that we need to understand is that the pilgrims will sing their songs of grace and glory on their way unto Zion. We'll get back to that in a moment. Elect exiles. It's a two-word sermon at the very beginning that deserves its own unpacking. And any preacher, well, uh, this preacher, finds himself way uh, out of his depths to explain it so well. He, he, he stops us for a moment, and we almost have to shake that off to say, well, what did he just say? We are exiles, and and oftentimes Christian, perhaps you have this in common with these first-century Christians. Indeed, we do. We feel like exiles. Sometimes we look at all of the things around us, all the things occurring to us, uh, to turn on the news. Uh, You could tell my age i'm still talking about turning things on as if it's a knob on a tv but that's good thing i didn't see say read the paper then you would know how old i was but uh, nonetheless everything seems like it's aligned against us and we just feel like exiles a word by itself which could be very discouraging i'm an exile But Peter's already modified the word, hasn't he? He's already told us how to read that word. He's already told us that it's because we've been elect. Now understand for a moment, Peter was not grinding a theological stone here. He was grasping the true word of God in all of its glorious orthodoxy and not allowing us to understand it merely as a concept, but saying this is why we go on. This is how we go on. This hasn't been done to us. We're not exiles because of something that has happened over us. Because we've been appointed. We've been appointed to it and been purposed in it. The word elect is modified in verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 4, in verse 5. And that helps us to understand what kind of exile, sojourner, pilgrim... We're called to be and indeed can be and are. Notice verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. Another one of those sermons within a sermon. Turn with me, if you will, as a As a guest, I'm allowed a free flip. So, Psalm 137. Psalm 137. Maybe in some of the ways we've described first century Christians that first received this letter by the Apostle, Maybe you're thinking that you can identify in some way with that. But notice that brings us to an identification with the people even further back. Having been driven from Jerusalem, having been driven from Judah, the people of God sing. It's such an interesting psalm, Psalm 137. I don't mean to preach two sermons, but it's, it's worthy of a consideration. The whole psalm asks the question, how can we sing? But it's a psalm which is meant to be sung. So they're singing, how can we sing? By the waters of Babylon. There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Here's the question in verse 4. How shall we sing? Can you imagine an entire covenant community asking this question? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? The context behind Psalm 137 is that the Israelites turned from their God, turned from the God of their youth, turned from the God that delivered them from Egypt into the land of plenty And to the land that would witness his glory through them in their worship. The Israelites had turned to other gods. The Israelites had broken the covenant made with Moses at Sinai. And they were pulled from their land. There's a context there. But do you hear the words? Do you hear the rattled hearts of these people? Do you hear the kind of stream of mind and soul, the very kind that Jesus himself, as he looked to them, uh, said, how I would have gathered you in my own arms? And perhaps it's the same kind of question in, in a different context now. And perhaps that's why it's so bewildering for those first century Christians. How can we sing the songs? Maybe, again, from a different context, but nonetheless, the same words. Perhaps what Peter was hearing when he himself is in Rome, what he's hearing from the reports from Pontius, from Galatia, from Caspadocia, from Asia, from Bithynia. By the way, it's the fourth time I said that this morning, and that's, that's pretty impressive for a Sunday morning. Okay, So anyway, uh, maybe he's hearing from them, how can we sing? Have you been both blessed as well as pricked in the soul when on a particularly heavy Sunday morning for you, the hymn for the day might be something like so simple, Blessed Assurance. And yet perhaps you came in that Sunday morning struggling with that whole idea. where it's amazing grace. And the pilgrim path that you walked that week and perhaps are still on seems so dark and the clouds have gathered and it's hard to sing exclamatory words like amazing grace. perhaps you see the world around us. And we're told to sing, all creatures of our God and King. When all the world has come to the conclusion that all creatures have no God and King, or all the world is its own God and King. And perhaps like Pilgrim, from Pilgrim's Progress, the kingdom light seems so far away. And there's still so far to walk. How could I sing? How could I sing? But notice what Peter does here in verse 2. You're elect exiles because of, according to, the foreknowledge of God the Father. God the Father. He won't let us approach the throne of our God. Not if we be in Christ without identifying it with the Father. It's not enough for Peter to say, according to the foreknowledge of God. That is true. Amen. But amen and amen and amen. He says, God the Father. Foreknowledge. Some have incorrectly stated that this word simply means that God looked down the corridor of time to see who would. How horrible. The word to know is in this word. And he knows us. And the question, believer, for you today, and the question for these first century believers is when did he know us? Consider that. When did he begin to know us? Do you know it would be encouraging? Follow with me here. Hold back the rocks of heresy throwing just for a moment. It would be one thing. And it'd be somewhat encouraging for him to say, Jim, 30 years before you were saved, I knew you. Okay. Maybe we'll go a little bit more. Jim, 300 years before you were saved, I knew you. Or I began to know you. That's the word. Began. But the foreknowledge of God is grounded in the eternal attribute of God. God's elect were not those that God had to learn. God knew us, He knew them. When? Perhaps the question might be better stated when did God begin? He's always been. He is eternal and his eternal counsels are in his eternal glory and his eternal attribute. Believer, Peter says, you woke up today and the path was hard. You don't know what tomorrow's path will bring and you were surprised yesterday, but your God has ordained this for his glory and for your good in eternity past. You are his, he said, is electing love upon you. When did that begin? And the answer which should joggle our minds, it never began. It's always been. This God, this glorious God, this wondrous God, which... which furthers the boundaries of our minds and blows right past those things that we could even imagine. Peter takes this glorious word of orthodoxy and says to the, to the hurting and the persecuted and the struggling Christian, this, this is how you press on. Because it is not the God of distance or the God of coldness. No, no, no. It is God the Father. How striking was it when Jesus Christ among his disciples prayed. And how he would pray, Father, Father. The disciples had never seen anything like it, had never heard anything like it. Pharisees would not teach such a thing. But Jesus taught his disciples to pray that way, didn't he? And do you know what's wonderful about that? The disciples didn't ask Jesus to teach them to do anything else. And he had done amazing things among them, didn't he? They didn't teach them. He didn't ask, or they didn't ask him to teach them to multiply loaves and fish. Good skill to have. As amazing as that is. He did or he was not asked by his disciples even how to heal. Do you, do you know he he didn't even teach them public speaking? Isn't that amazing? They didn't ask for that. But in light of the teaching with authority that Jesus had. In light of the the, the signs and the wonders which, which accompanied the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom, what were they struck with? So much so to their core that they asked Jesus to teach them. Teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. What were the first words of Christ? Our Father. Our Father. And doesn't Jesus teach us what the Father is? He would not give us anything for our harm when we ask. Would he do things to hurt us? Would he do things that were not good for us? Would he place us where we are in danger, adrift on our own? That's the thing, isn't it? Jesus taught his disciples just by his own prayers that the Father was always with him. Wherever he was, the Father was with him. Jesus lived his life indeed As an exile passing through. Where was he passing? He was passing on his way to Calvary. To where he would show his great love for his people. To where he, by God's appointment, would show what great love God had for his people. But he never, he never, ever lived a moment of his life, our Christ, ever outside of the Father's presence. And if you'll remember, even upon the cross, even there, where God in his presence turned from Christ as he bore the wrath of God for our sin, as he took our sin debt upon himself and bore it to its fullest and brought his suffering to the greatest zenith that it could ever be, to where he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It wasn't because God had gone. He never doubted the presence of God. And having accomplished his work upon Calvary, Those wondrous, blessed words, which follow that wondrous singular word, tetelestai. It is finished. It is finished. Praise God, it is finished. The final words of our Christ. Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. I think Peter was taught very well, wasn't he? According to the foreknowledge, that, that loving covenantal knowledge of God the Father. Exile, you feel exiled today. so Sojourner, you feel like you are not home yet. Suffering Christian, you may ask, how can we sing the songs of Zion in this land? It's because Zion is with us. The glory of Zion, the glory of God the Father is with us. And Peter immediately tells these exiles, you walk not alone. And there's purpose to it. Notice in the sanctification of the spirit. Do you think there's a wasted moment exile? Do do you think you're simply counting the miles off until you get home? That's not the way we live our lives as Christians. That's the way I took road trips as a child in my Gramps' Buick. It was a Buick in those days, and so you had an acre of land back there in the back seat, but the miles kept going forever and ever and ever, largely because he drove 30 everywhere. (laughs) But, you know, a child says, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And Christian, I know if you're anything like me, you're tempted to say the same thing. Am I there yet? Am I there yet? Am I there yet? But the kingdom of God is the light from us. That glorious kingdom is shining reflected in the people of God, in the people of Christ. How would you say? How is that possible? And if, if, if you're anything like these first century Christians, if you're anything like me, at times you say, but it's, it's too long. And it's too hard to keep walking. And I barely can take one step in front of the other. Perhaps you have prayed prayers that sound like this Dear God, I'm tired and I want to be home. And Peter knows that, <clears throat> and the Spirit knows that. And the Spirit has ordained that to let the lights of home burn all the brighter. The one thing about Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress, if you've not read it, please do. But suffice it to say, there's a pilgrim. And he's on his way to the celestial kingdom. And as he goes through his pilgrimage with scenes and narratives and allegories galore. After every turn, the light of the celestial kingdom gets brighter. He's one step closer. But those steps aren't wasted. They're not meant to be just ticked by. Another year, another week. Isn't it wonderful that God has not given us a five year plan? He's given us a seven day plan. Another Sabbath, another Sabbath, another Sabbath. But the Sabbath glory, uh, as an aside, uh, but, but very much so for those who are elect exiles, is that it's, it, it drives us on. And it drives us on not to an unending cycle, but it drives us on to the glorious end, to the glorious fulfillment. And with every passing step, with every uh, passing issue, there is a sanctifying mercy occurring. You're being made holy. You're being made ever more conformed to Christ. You are being prepared. You are being strengthened. You are being encouraged in this exile to be obedient to Jesus Christ as we move on in that text. I just want to, with my last few moments... Consider that for a moment. For obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling with his blood. This is atonement. This is uh, the glorious reality of the washing of the blood of Christ on all those whom God has appointed in eternity past that are his own, that are his beloved But the other thing that we must consider with the sprinkling with his blood is the setting from which it is recalled when the people of Israel were there in the wilderness and the law was read out, the covenant was read out, and to mark it as being enacted and initiated, a a hyssop branch was dipped into the blood of the bull and it was sprinkled on the people and they were marked. They were marked. Wherever they would go, wherever they would walk, whatever area they would be in, remember their clothes never faded. That wilderness generation, their clothes never faded, they never wore, they never tore. They kept the same clothes. And we say, that's wonderful. That's an incredible miracle. What else is on the clothes? the blood of the covenant. Wherever they went, they were representatives of that covenant. Christian, wherever we go, we are representatives of the covenant. We're children of the covenant. We are people of the covenant. We might go to the world and the world says, you don't look anything like us. Of course, we are marked with the blood of Christ. You might look at the world and say, they have nothing for us. In fact, they're trying to push us out, push us out. According to the providence of God and the doctrines of of all that is entailed within the, the beautiful providence of God, that's pushing us on. We can't find our home here. We find our home there. Until that brings us to the next, to the next, to the next, until finally we're at home in glory. Well, Christian, notice how Peter ends the salutation. I had high hopes to get further than this today. That always happens to me. But it's mostly because I couldn't get past it. What's going to help me and what's going to help you? Not help, terrible word. Drive us on. Drive us on. This afternoon, after evening service, when the rest of the week starts to unroll before us, the labors of tomorrow morning, and all that's entailed between the next Sabbath day. How do I go on? But God, the Father, has ordained to pour over you, Christian, his grace and his peace. Notice how Peter ends this salutation. Do you know what I love about a fisherman? He's never satisfied with the fish he's got. It doesn't matter how big it is. Uh, I once heard my grandfather say the only thing that gets larger after it dies is a fish. (laughs) It just keeps, and the telling, it keeps getting bigger and bigger. And there's a word here that Peter employs that would have been used in his old trade. How many fish did you catch today? And they would say in the first century, the sea has multiplied unto me. But Peter's not a fisher of fish. He's a fisher of men. He loves Christ. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he loves the church. And he says, Church, you're not getting a little bit of grace tomorrow. And you don't have a little bit of peace between you and God tomorrow. It's multiplied. It's multiplied. It's without measure. Without measure. Exiles, indeed. Elect, amen. According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. And the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And so I ask you today, is your soul thirsting? Is it cast down? Well, dear exile elect, according to the foreknowledge of God, I have good news for you. God is our father in Christ. And he loves us. And for the sake of Christ, he pours out grace and peace to us this day. And so when your soul is cast down, with the psalmist say, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ. Because of him and in him and through him and by him, we are born again unto a living hope. You have not saved us, O God, to be a people merely of concepts and principles that float around in the air, but to truth that penetrates the heart the truth of the gospel which which pumps that spiritual blood that makes us press on in the faith. We are exiles indeed, but we're yours. We're elect according to your foreknowledge. Nobody else's, thus we belong to no one else. We belong to the creator of the universe. And so as we press on in persecution or toiling or trial or tribulation or sorrows, whatever they may be, let us remember that the God who made the starry skies is our Father in Christ. And he knows us. And has provided grace and peace abounding, multiplied to press us on. Bless your people. Call others who need yet come. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.